What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. This is Dr. Mario Sakas, and I pray that you are having an amazing day today. All right, so let's just be honest for a second and just state the fact that we are all on our devices and we are on social media a whole lot these days, whether we're scrolling or watching or commenting or just playing video games or whatever it is. Man, we're on these things a whole, whole lot. So the question really is, like, do we really know the impact that this stuff is having on our mental and spiritual health? Do we really know the impact that it's having on our capacities for relationships and communication? Do they help us or do they hurt us or how do they help us and how do they hurt us? Well, that's the topic for today's episode. And joining me on the show today to talk about this is Dr. Michael Horn, who is a licensed psychologist at the Alpha Omega Clinic and author of the book, Tech Talk, Strategies for Families in a Digital World, put out by Our Sunday Visitor. In this episode, we discuss the ways technology impacts communication and our relationships, how social media should be a great starting place for communication, but shouldn't be the sole means of a relationship, how better allocation of our time is crucial to our technology use, the correlation between time spent online and mental health issues, how we define friendship in a Facebook age, and how we should use technology for good and meaningful endeavors. Well, if you find this episode helpful, please leave a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Please share it on the socials. If it's been helpful for you, then I imagine it would be helpful for others. Simply tell a friend about it as well. So spread the word about the Always Hope podcast. So thank you, everybody, for chiming in. And I pray that everybody's having a great day. And let's get into this conversation with Dr. Michael Horn. Dr. Michael Horn, welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. How are you doing today? Well, thanks, Mario. Thanks for having me with you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. I mean, this is clearly a, a topic that is on the hearts and minds of many parents, um, and I think many young people as well. You know, just thinking about this question of what is health and safety when we think about our digital lives, and how do we manage that appropriately? Like, what what really is good practices? What are not so good practices? And what does our faith teach us and inform? So, I'm I'm excited about diving into this conversation, um, and thank you for the good work that you. You did putting this book together, The Tech Talk Strategies for Families in a Digital World, uh, published by Our Sunday Visitor. Um, so, so I guess really the, the first question I want to start with is, what led you to this study of, of digital technology and its impact on, on our health um, and on our psychology? Sure. Um, I think it's safe to say that my path to technology, my path to psychology rather, was um, windy at best. And I actually started out working in television. I got a, uh, I got a degree in radio, television, and film, and worked for a number of years um, in PBS. And I was a, a practicing Catholic at the time, raised cradle Catholic. And during my time working at PBS, I had a, a major reversion to the faith and realized that what previously I thought was the highest good entertaining people actually wasn't really the highest good, and that God was calling me to something different to actually try to help people. So I pursued a degree in psychology, but I never lost that interest in technology and particularly how technology impacts our relationships, how technology mediates communication and how technology can either strengthen or weaken the connections that we have with them. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So you did your study on, on technology. What was it on video game violence or something? Is that what I you did, were your yeah, dissertation my, on? My, that's right. No, the dissertation was on, uh, was on violent video games. So, um, Naively, I went into my dissertation thinking, all right, we know that video games can teach. The question is, what are they teaching? And if there are a lot of violent video games out there, are these things that actually could potentially teach violence? I mean, there's all sorts of research uh, about the U.S. military and their use of video games for uh, training purposes. In fact, sometimes they'll actually use commercially available games to go and, and, and train soldiers in combat to operate more effectively in combat. So I thought, well, that works. If you can, if you can change somebody's behavior in a negative way, maybe it's possible to go in and look at some of these games where empathy is encouraged, things that are uh, you know, pro-social video games, and see if you can actually go ahead and encourage people to have an increased amount of empathy and increased amount of compassion. And my wife, who is very patient and a lot smarter than me, said, it's an interesting idea. I bet you it won't work. <laughs> I said, well, okay, let me try it anyway. So I did a whole experiment, and she was right. 
Didn't work. Aggressive gains in the research, in the experiment that I did for my dissertation, increased aggressive feelings. But there was no change in positive feelings for folks who played positive games. Wow. So it really led me to think back on this idea of well, what's missing? What's missing from the technology? What's missing from the games? And I, I sincerely believe it's the genuine encounter with another person. You can't express empathy. You can't express compassion if there's no one there to receive it. Yeah, you can't. But you can teach somebody to be more aggressive or usury uh, because that's a diminishing of the person. So yeah. you're, you're diminishing the, the, the connection that you have with the person. It's actually easier when you don't see the person as a person um, when you're behaving aggressively or, um, or in a usury fashion. So, Correct. Wow, that's fascinating. All right, well, we're jumping right into it in today's episode. Um, all right, so setting the stage here, you know, obviously, like we're this podcast is done digitally. We're we're having this conversation over Zoom. I mean, so so clearly, not everything is bad, you know, and and these technologies can and should be used for appropriate means. Um, but what those means are, I mean, I think we're even clear about what those means should be. So, but I just really want to start with this because th- this was I, I love this quote and this is a lengthy quote here to the listener, directly from your book, here's pages 19 and 20, where you, you briefly kind of outline the, um, I guess, kind of the two major kind of shifts in mass communication. And the first was, of course, the the, the printing press, um, but then the second is the, the electric telegraph. And this is what you say here, and I think this is brilliant. So you say, Morse's electrical telegraph opened up the possibility of almost instantaneous transmission of messages across large distances. From that point on, information could be removed from its original context and shared with persons not intimately connected with its development. This is important as facts, data, and information that do not have direct significance on the life of the individual suddenly are treated with the same importance as the events that legitimately have great significance. So I'm going to pause right there. I think that's that's a great insight. You know, I often think about this when it comes to, obviously right now with, with the, the war in Ukraine, obviously we all have to be aware of it, but there are many times where big cultural events happen on the other side of the world that, that we know about instantaneously. And often I'm like, I, I, I feel like, I feel guilty that I can't get involved in it. Or I, or not, I don't say guilty because I'm like, it doesn't have direct involvement in my day-to-day life, you know? And so, so me spending hours on Facebook or having a formed opinion on X events, um, the other big one is Will Smith slapping, you know, Chris Rock. That's where we're in the, we're in the wake sure. of that. I'm like, do I need to have an opinion on this? Do I need to have, why, do, I don't know if I have to. And so why do I need to be divesting so much of my time and energy into it? You know, you're, you're saying even from the electric telegraph, which was 1844, that question was being posited, you know, which is really incredible. And so continue here. You say, Henry David Thoreau, reacting to this new technological development, suggested that just because Texas and Maine now had the ability to talk to each other instantaneously, it didn't mean that they actually had anything important to talk about. Thoreau recognized that just having a flow of information without context might not be that useful. It might actually serve to lower the standards of communication generally, transmitting primarily the mundane minutia of daily life rather than thoughtful discourse or deep reflection. Bam. Give it to me, Michael. What are are your thoughts? (laughs) I think social media, it's like we all have a very small broadcast antenna. It's Mm -hmm. a lot of broadcasting out. It's the equivalent of writing messages in the thousands and putting them in bottles and just flinging them into the sea. You know, it's not, it's, it's not an actual genuine encounter. We're not talking back and forth. And I think what it is, in this, we're looking for an audience. We're basically saying, here's what I think. Here's what's going on for me. We're not necessarily asking a question of anybody else. And if all we are looking at around us is people as audience, people as receiver, we miss the idea of people as sender. We miss the ability to, to be receptive to what it is that, that they are doing. And I think the temptation is this almost narcissistic sense of everything about my life is fascinating. Mm-hmm. You need to know what I had for lunch. You need to see a picture of the sandwich that I just ordered. And your life will be better for seeing my BLT. Yeah, That's almost what we're saying. It is, it is, of course, what we're saying. But to the young people now, it's like, but that's the means of communication. 
<laughs> like that's True. that's the way that they encounter one another, or at least begin encountering one another, or not even encountering. Well, encountering is one, but then even like the the shared activity is the posting. Like that's what they do, and that's what they do as a cohort. You know, it can is, be, is but, to do that. but you said something really important. It's where they start. Mm-hmm. I would say it doesn't have to stop there. Fine, you meet online, you connect somewhere. Where do we take it from there? Because if it stops there, then I, I think we have a problem. So, you know, you, you raised a great point about the, the positive benefits of technology. And we have just lived through a two-year pandemic that, thank goodness, we had Zoom and FaceTime and WhatsApp. Because I think for as challenging emotionally as this was for many, many people, it would have been so much worse if it happened in 1984. Correct. We would have talked about an incredible level of isolation where even long-distance phone calls would have been prohibitively expensive. But in those cases, we want to make sure that what we are, what is our intention in using technology? A great example for me personally is uh, my brother, and he and I are very close. He, he currently lives in Texas, but he only moved back to the States about 18 months ago. Prior to that, he'd been in Japan for about eight years. Now, he's not flying back from Japan, except for maybe once every two years. And I want to maintain a relationship with him. I want him to have a relationship with my kids at a very pivotal age, seven years being absent in the life of our kids or our nephews and nieces. That's a lot of time. Yeah. So thank goodness for thank goodness for, for FaceTime. Thank goodness for Zoom. Thank goodness that we can actually go and connect that way. But the purpose of the use of that technology, or at least the way that I want to use it, is as a bridge. It gets us between the times we can be together. So the idea that technology can be the steward of a relationship rather than the source of a relationship. My concern is that if the relationships are solely contained within an online domain, are, are those fulfilling, life-giving, positive relationships? And I, I, I would question anybody who said, yes, they absolutely are, simply based on the, the numbers of self-reported isolation we're seeing and a lot of the team response to their emotional well-being when they are on social media platforms excessively. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and so the difference here, obviously, um, there's a couple of things here, I guess you're saying. One is in terms of using, we are arguing is use technology as kind of a bridge, as, as a stopgap. Like it's good and it does what it's supposed to do, but in the long term, like you need to have certainly face-to-face kind of personal interaction. But then, but in, even in the stopgap place, like there's a difference between initiating a FaceTime call with your brother uh, versus a post on on Facebook or an Instagram or on Snapchat or any social media app specifically, where you're, and man, it's really hard because you put something out there and you generally could be sharing it with few people, but you're always, and this is always the challenge, even for myself. Like I didn't get into this stuff till just a couple years ago when I started the podcast, but you're always navigating that line of. Am I sharing this genuinely because I think it's value or, or am I sharing it because I hope it gets the clicks? And, and, and maybe it's a little bit of both, you know, is that you put a good post out, a picture out, and you hope people appreciate it. But wow, so much of our, uh, our value set is, is attributed to how many people uh, click yes that they like it or, 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 or just leave it alone. Um, and so there is a difference between one-on-one interaction, like right now we're having a Zoom call, I'm in New Orleans, you're in Virginia, and we're able to interact through the digital means. But this is different and people who listen to it on the podcast are choosing to listen to it, um, mm-hmm. which is maybe a little bit different than, than with social media. Are, are, and are we seeing, I guess what, the reason I'm asking this is because when we think about like the culprits of, well, the culprits of, of, of mental health issues and, and those things. I almost feel like we need to distinguish, is it, is it just a phone? Is it social media? Is it, is it, is it games? Is it, are we seeing differences across these different platforms? Um, I, I, I don't know. That's, that, that's kind of what I'm asking. It's a good question. I think I'm going to give you a, a, a short but unsatisfactory response and then go into something longer. It depends. Uh-huh. It depends on the kid. It depends You're such on the a person. therapist. That's that's, that's, I, I really that's like the no, typical therapist answer. You know, maybe. Like, what do you think about we, that? We well, all learned true. that in grad school. That was that was, <laughs> that was the, the standard answer from all our professors. Right. It depends. If you don't know what it to depends. say, spin it back. But I mean, in all seriousness, uh, saying how much technology is good or bad, it's kind of like asking, you know, how much cake is too much? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends. Is 
the kid, you know, does the kid have a, a gluten intolerance? Is this, is this somebody who's diabetic? Very little cake might be way too much. Or somebody could eat cake all day long and have a fast metabolism and be fine. Everyone's going to respond differently to this, but I think it's important to, to understand the place that we are choosing to put technology in our lives. Because even here in Northern Virginia, we still only have 24 hours in a day. We would love to have more. We are incredibly overscheduled. We do way too much. But the truth is we got 24 hours a day. That's what God gave us. So what are we going to do with that time? We got to work. We got to you know, shower and sleep and eat. But if I spend an hour on Twitter, I can't also spend an hour having dinner with friends. Right. Not have it be a quality hour. So if I'm saying yes to one thing, by definition, I'm saying no to everything else. That's fine. As long as it's in balance, we want to make sure that we're saying yes to the right things in balance at the right time. So if you have somebody who is spending you know, a, a lot of time online, then that in itself could be an issue. Because if we're choosing to be engaged in a screen-based activity, are we potentially saying no to something that could be face-to-face? And one of the stats that, that I, I love, and it's, it's a little out of date, but I still think it holds weight, based on usage rates for social media alone, not not Netflix, not ESPN, just social media. In 2017, the average person in the U.S. would spend five years and four months of their life on social media. Wow. That's the average person. That's the equivalent amount of time that it takes to walk across the country 13 times. <laughs> That's a lot of time mm-hmm. that we're choosing to say yes to this. So for someone who is feeling more isolated or more alone, what does that say? Especially if they feel like this is a place where I do go to connect with people. Am I connecting in a way that is healthy? There was a study that I saw from 2019 that said that 30% of millennials reported always or often feeling lonely. Hmm. That was compared to 20% of Gen X and 15% of boomers. That was before the pandemic. During the pandemic, that number increased to 40%. So if our ability to connect through social media is as fulfilling as we want it to be, why is it that those reported rates of isolation went up so significantly for this group, for millennials? Two out of five people in that age group say that they always or often feel lonely. To me, that's an indication that there's a major problem. Yes, agreed, agreed. Um, and I love that when you said, obviously, like you could see the difference between boomers and then Gen X and then millennials. And then we'll see, obviously, what happens with, with Gen Z um, and this next generation that's kind of coming up in terms of with the numbers, if they go even higher, you know. Um, so I guess, what are you seeing? I mean, like you just said, you, you threw that stat out about loneliness. Um, is it correlated to number of hours that people are online? Um, are there other significant you know, kind of stats that we need to be aware of as, as we're kind of engaging in, in this discourse about, you know, digital health? It is. There's the more time you're on, the more uh, opportunity for problem there are, there, there can be. The other thing too, is if you've got people who are more predisposition to depression, they're not going to get less depressed if they are spending a lot of time. It was actually a, a, a University of Pennsylvania study um, in 2018 that said that people who are heavy social media users, if they reduce the time at which they are using social media, that actually leads to decreased reports of depression and loneliness. So the folks who are on a ton, their lives reportedly got better when they cut back some of that usage. There are a lot of things that we're seeing as well. You know, obviously you've got a sense of unrealistic and unfavorable comparison between ourselves and looking at other people, the whole concept of FOMO, fear of missing out, that something might be going on, that someone else's life is more interesting or better than mine because of the stories that they talk about, what they have in their posts, the pictures that they're going to share. But we've got to remember, I mean, to your point earlier, social media is predominantly PR. Hmm. We're not going to post the pictures of ourselves in mid-sneeze. We're not going to you know, go ahead and tweet about how it's a Saturday night and I did my taxes and that was fun, whether my bathroom is cleaner than it's ever been before, because we don't look at that and assume that is something other people are going to find interesting or 
desirable. Mm-hmm. When we're putting these things out there, part of it is a way to attract people, either clicks or views or likes or attention. We are trying to say, hey, look at me. There's something good or interesting about me. I am worth spending time with, or in this case, following. Yeah. And that's uh, that's tough. <laughs> it's, because like you said, it, it's it, an audience in and of itself isn't what's going to bring personal fulfillment. And, and, and they aren't genuine relationships. Now, again, listen, I, I pray for all my followers sincerely, you know, people who listen to the podcast, my wife and I and our family. I mean, we, we intentionally, you know, say prayers for the individuals who are, who are connected, you know, at least socially, you know, to, to these things uh, that I put out. And, and, and I'm grateful for that, you know, so it does, it is an opportunity to be able to pray for people by name, but I don't know their stories. I don't know the examples. I don't know the, the situations that that's happening and, and nor should I, you know, truthfully, nor should I. And that's why this is a, the media. That's what it is. It's a medium, right? That, that gives people an opportunity to, to hear or to listen to, to this show or to other podcasts. It gives you an opportunity to be able to connect in that way. But it is, like you said earlier, it's just a one-way street. You know, it isn't, it isn't that there's a conversation, like we're having a conversation, but but we're not having the conversation with the audience that's listening into this right now either. Sure. I think though, you know, this is actually highlighting one of the best parts of technology, mm-hmm. the ability to be creative and to go and reach people with a message of hope and positivity that, that they might not be able to get otherwise. There are so many great resources and podcasts out there uh, that a generation ago we didn't we didn't have. Right. So the ability to be very selective in terms of what it is that you choose to engage with, that I think can be a good, it can be a positive. To me, it's always, what's the next step? What do we do with this? How do we take these things and how do we implement it in our own lives? How do we use this for good in our own lives? So having a, having a platform like this is, is fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's great that people can come and say, okay, you know what? How do I really want to consider my place in the world? Well, I think for, like yeah. So for me, it, it, and I've seen this also now. My son, my oldest son, is is blogging now, and what I've seen from for me and what I've been encouraging for him is you just have to let go of the audience side of it, and you just it if it is a, a strictly creative endeavor, and it's an opportunity. Like for me, it's been a wonderful opportunity to be able to process questions that I've had about doubts, about faith, about hope. Um, conversations like this that, you know, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation otherwise, you know? And so here it is, we're doing an interview and able to, to kind of connect into me. Um, and so like, that's what draws me. And it's really tapped into this creative space that, like you said, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, because I, I would have had to have gotten a degree in media or be on the radio or, uh, or something else. And now it's like, I just got the equipment. I, bought the, the course, you know, to learn how to do the podcast from Pat Flynn. And, uh, and I did all the work and, 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 then here we are, you know, a few years later. And, um, and, and I've loved it. This has been a, a tremendous blessing for me in my own personal life, you know, being able to do this. But again, it, it is about that sense of, if you feel like you have something to say, you feel like you have something to really be able to offer that's a value to people, then these platforms do give you that space to be able to do that. Um, but you have to always hold intention that nipping kind of desire of, of, of celebrity or making sure that's like, everybody's got to listen to it then, you know, because mm-hmm. of that and, uh, and chasing that. Um, and that's not the case. And I've, and I've shared that with my son who's blogging, he's doing a wonderful job, um, you know, putting his thoughts out there and, but it's, it's helping him also to be able to, to develop that craft of writing and being able to con- and have a, a very clear outlet where he can, he can write. Um, so I guess, as we're thinking about this, you know, okay, so we're saying that one of the main things is increased n- number of hours per day, so the amount of time that you're on. Um, we would say also then kind of what you're doing online matters, of course, and how mm-hmm. you're using it. It's not just the hours, but what you're doing online. And I think the other piece that I, that I so, so those are so the p- two kind of potentials. We know also we could say content, what you're viewing, what you're looking Absolutely. at, that, that of course is going to influence. Um, but then what else would you say in terms of, before we get too far into the negative, but what else would you say in terms of positive like attributes or qualities um, that can make this experience worthwhile? Like what like what works when you're seeing health uh, with regards to kind of digital digital use? When I see a lot of balance in use, that tends to lead to a lot of uh, healthier perspectives. I mean, it's you know, in the same way, it's it's like drinking a soft drink or or, or eating dessert. There's a place for it. You just don't want to do it all the time. 
So if it is an opportunity to go and uh, connect with like-minded people that you might not have an opportunity to, to connect with or to hear something or engage in something that you might not have otherwise been able to connect with without the technology, that's all great. One of the uh, strangest experiences, the greatest blessings during the pandemic, when all the masses were shut down, our parish streamed the masses on FaceTime, on uh, Facebook rather. Mm-hmm. Now, was that as good as receiving the Eucharist? It was not, but it was something that we could at least participate in. Right? We could sit, we could, we could watch, we could, we could pray. Our, our parish actually expanded what they were doing. So they were actually doing the liturgy of the hours, mm-hmm. which was wonderful. So having an opportunity to go and, and learn our faith in a different way and pray with the, with the priests, it was a, a daily divine mercy chaplet. All those things were really good and creative uses of technology. But it didn't stop when that was over. It was when we reopened, then it's okay. Are we, are we, are we building on that? Are we trying to bring more people back into these, you know, these, these different opportunities to encounter, uh, encounter the faith? I think that you know, we have a lot of opportunity to connect with people that we might not otherwise be able to connect with or stay in touch with people that we would otherwise have lost. Mm-hmm. Those can be really joyful moments. The opportunity to connect with somebody you lost touch with in high school and now you found each other again. I had a, a wonderful encounter at a conference in Orlando that I got to see a friend who I hadn't seen in about 15 years. And because of just this conference being promoted online, she realized, hey, he's there. Oh, he's actually going to be a, a, a speaker in this, this panel. She reached out to me. We were able to catch up, have a cup of coffee. It was a really uh, wonderful blessing to be able to do that. And that wouldn't have been available if we hadn't had that, had that chance to realize, oh, we're both going to be at the same place at the same time. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Mario Sacasa, just taking a quick break from my conversation with Dr. Michael Horn to just encourage you to check out Dating Well. If you've been enjoying this conversation that we've been having about technology and its impact on health and relationships, and you want to know how technology actually impacts us when it comes to dating, well, in Dating Well, I have a couple episodes on long-distance relationships and how to navigate that using technology. I also have an episode on dating apps and how to use those appropriately or texting or communication. So we do talk about technology's impacts on modern romance in Dating Well. So please check out Dating Well. In addition to the stuff with technology, I have a whole great resources in this program related to, to relationships and dating and the ins and outs of dating and what works and what doesn't work. It's a very robust program that you're going to love. Please check it out at faithinmarriage.org. Again, you can check out Dating Well at faithinmarriage.org. Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. And so again, going back to just facilitating at the end, the end game is facilitating kind of connection, you know, person person connection. And I think I've seen the the twinge, Jean Twinge, am I saying her last name, Twinge? I think so, that's right. Yeah, she's from San Diego, um, one of the the big researchers in this area when it comes to kind of digital health and, and um, she doesn't like the term Gen Z, she uses the term iGen for this next generation, um, but that's okay. And, and is it, but she <laughs> she's the only one, she's the only one, and I don't know why, I guess she just, she's just, she just, whatever, that's fine, it's fine, she's, she's, whatever, whatever her terms are for the generation, that's fine. it. But one of, one of the things that she says is that when it comes to online use, as you're saying similarly, that the, one of the things that genuinely buttresses the the negative interactions or really kind of prevents it from happening is do you have a healthy social life outside of the online stuff? And so, yeah, you can be all involved in Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat with your buddies and with your friends, but do you still interact with those people outside of the social media? So even if they're good friends of yours, I mean, are you still getting together with them? Are you still using these things? not just as a means to be able to share, but to genuinely then go out and do something together. And so, I, you know, that's that's a key in all of this is to make sure that you, you're still maintaining some, some healthy friendships. And, and I think that's important also for parents to be aware of that with their own kids. Um, and so making sure that they still have kind of personal interactions and healthy social life outside of just the online stuff. Now, I will say like with my 
my second son, my oldest son wasn't really a gamer, kind of never really got into it. My second son's getting into it. He just spent a lot of money of his own money. He'd saved up for it, but he just bought himself a new Xbox. And um, and part of, but part of the intention to get the Xbox was actually to be more social with like cousins and friends uh-huh. that live in different states. And so we only allow him to talk with his cousins and his friends that he knows. We're not letting him open conversation with just strangers online. But man, they'll they'll plug into the headset and they'll be playing a racing game together or Fortnite together or something else together or Minecraft together. They'll be building together. So they're doing something together. They're having a shared activity, a shared competition, but, and they're interacting the whole time. Like, and this is, again, I don't know if this, I I don't want to be, you know, stereotypical here, but I think this is more, I'm sure, I know they're girl gamers also, but for the boys at least, like, like it's giving them like it gives them an outlet and a mission. You know, they're like a tackling the the task at hand. They're talking at the right. same time, and so I I allow it in the sense that it's people that he knows, and mm-hmm. he's building these memories and these experiences with these folks, right. which is fine. Now we also when it's been an hour or two, it's like all right, well it's time to get off. You got to rest the eyes. You still need to go out and go shoot hoops or you know get disengaged. But at least it it is offering some value to him. Absolutely. And it's, it's giving him a chance to, to interact with, you know, friends, with cousins that he might not be able to interact with otherwise. Yep. Realistically, if they were all together in the same space, they'd probably be doing this anyway. They'd be doing the exact same thing. Right. And it's actually, so, it's actually so, easier for them because they don't have four controllers. You know what I mean? Like the, right. like the physical limitations are prevented more than just the, anyway. So they're, the yeah, they're, the they're, they're engaged, <laughs> they're engaged, they're talking, they're doing a shared activity, they're engaging in teamwork and it's not eating up their entire Saturday. So that's totally balanced. I, I mentioned my brother earlier that I, that I FaceTimed. I have a small confession. Um, I have, I'm an enormous nerd. Um, my brother and I, We'll play board games over FaceTime. We have the same copies of board games. We will synchronize the board games and play back and forth that way. Uh, and there, there are two or three games that we've tried that work really, really well. We've roped in uh, one of our cousins into this as well. Because what would we be doing if we were all in the same space? Exactly this. Playing board games. So it's saying, look, I want to hang out and have a board game night with my brother. And I can do that now when he's in Tokyo or in Austin or New Orleans or wherever he happens to be. Thanks to the technology. That is a boon of technology that isn't trying to take over the relationship. It's giving me that magic window to try to strengthen the relationship that I value. And if we put a lot of time into creating and cultivating that relationship. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, if you guys were playing Risk the whole time, I'm sure your iPhone batteries would probably die before you get the game over with, though. Like so, so I'm assuming yeah. Risk isn't one of those games that you're trying to play over. No, we uh, we we both have young kids, so it's got to be pretty short and pretty focused because sooner or later someone will wake up, and we can't leave anything after the kids wake up because everything's not. So that's great. Well, I guess so. So thinking about this, you said earlier in terms of communication, just the changes. We're seeing also, I guess, changes with regards to even language. And I think this is something you mentioned in the book in terms of like what a friend is and, yeah. and how we how we define friendship now as opposed to how we define friendship before. Um, so give me give me some insight into that. What, what, what do you think of the use of friend as somebody who follows you on social media? I think it's a total misnomer. When we, when we talk about friends, we talk about exchange. We talk about relationships that are are grounded in self-gift where I can give to someone and they can they can receive in return, I, I'm interested in the good of the other, not just what they can do to me. They're not just one of the people who've liked my post. I, I honestly think a better description rather than friend is, is subscriber, mm-hmm. because yeah. that's what we want. We want somebody who's who's paying attention to our opinions when we are engaging in this unhealthy way. We're not looking for 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 that real interaction. If we if we want something on social media we want a payoff we want a reaction we want a response and we don't want to work for the friendship there's a a sociologist named sherry turkle who's got a, a wonderful quote she says that we we create technology and have more we create the illusion of friendship without the demands we create the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship Mm-hmm. It's what mm-hmm. Sherry Turkle was talking about. Mm-hmm. So we, we actually expect more of technology and less of each other. Mm-hmm. We go online with this sense of, I want kind of something that feels like a person. 
But if they're going to make my life difficult, I, I, I'm not going to stick around. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go through the hard work of actually repairing when a relationship has been ruptured. That's, to me, what friendship is. Friendship is an opportunity to have to go through the tough growth in a relationship of apologizing, of being hurt, of processing that, of pulling yourself back together with the other person. Because if we can't do that, what chance do we have of, of, of any long-lasting, healthy relationship? Yeah. Certainly with the idea of marriage, for example, yep. you're going to have to figure out how to resolve conflict appropriately. And yeah. if social media in some way unintentionally conditions us to not put up with that, oh, you know what, this is too hard, unfriend, mm-hmm. unfollow, delete. This kind of feeds into the whole idea of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. You're a chore I don't want to put up with. As opposed to that hurt, but I love you enough that I really want to work through this right. and have us be better on the other side. Right, right. And of course, one would be, see, this is, this is the challenge is that like, because it's superficial, like if, if you don't like it, then you shouldn't follow it. Or if you keep getting filth or, or comments or things that come at you from a, from a specific channel that are uh, triggering you, that's used a buzzword there, but in some ways let's, you know, that are upsetting you or bothering you, or you just don't find tasteful, even at a more kind of benign level, like then unfollow it and you're not going to hurt anybody's feelings. And that's fine. Go ahead and do that. But you have to trust our own judgment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in in the same way that like if a relationship, I mean, a face-to-face relationship, if it isn't healthy, get out. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. We're we're certainly not saying, you know, like, okay, well, this guy's terrible. He treats me terribly and he, you know, he gets a little bit rough, but I'm really going to stick with it because I'm invested. Well, no, that's dysfunction. That's, that's domestic violence. We don't want that. So we still have to recognize, okay, is this in alignment with my dignity? Is this person respecting my dignity? Is this material actually bringing me to flourish? Is it bringing me to something better than I am? Because if not, it doesn't matter if it's online or in person, we shouldn't we shouldn't have time for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then that means also just like making sure that we're surrounding ourselves with stuff that's worthwhile. Yes. Um, but back to this notion of friendship, like you're right in that, like real friendship requires demands. Like, and that's because we're imperfect beings. Mm-hmm. I'm needy. And sometimes I need my friends to, to support me and lift me up. And sometimes they're needy and they need my help and support to be able to, to lift them up. And it's fine to, of course, put prayer requests and things out in social media. I've seen great novenas and prayer chains kind of starting, you know, which is wonderful and tremendous. But again, it's, it's, and those things are very, can be very helpful, but they're not at the end of the day, the same thing as having kind of a close knit friends. And so I think the other issue here is that what we recognize is that like, we really, when I say friends, like we all, I only really have like a handful of people that I would genuinely call like a friend, you know, which is mm-hmm. a real small group of people, um, like a real brotherhood in the sense that's there. But acquaintances, you know, lots of people that I know sure. and interact with, social, more superficial social interactions. Well, that's a large circle for sure. And then even, right. le- and even more so when you start talking about like, you know, reaches with regards to online stuff. But I think some of it is also recognizing that we just have to change the language a little bit to say that like, people who you genuinely call a friend are people who are, you know, just a real, real small, tight-knit group of people. And that is okay. That is okay. Absolutely. And within that friendship, one of the key, probably the two key elements, do I trust the other person? Mm-hmm. Have they earned that? And do I feel that they understand me? Have they taken the time to, to know me? And vice versa, have I taken the time to know them? You're right. That really does get down to a very, very small core group of people. That's okay. In fact, I, I would be very concerned. I still am concerned when my teenage clients come in and I say, well, how many friends do you have? If they say 2,000, <laughs> no, no, you don't have 2,000. You don't have 2,000 friends. friends. You don't have 2,000 friends. You couldn't write down 2,000 names of people if we sat here all day. You yeah. have people. Yeah. But, you know, your high school might have 2,000 people in it, but you don't have 2,000 friends. Not really. Yeah, and I guess that some of it's just we, we've lost language with regards to like relationships and common language in terms of like how we look and make distinctions, you know, in terms of what's a friend, what's an acquaintance, what's dating, what's a boyfriend, you know, what's a partnership. I mean, like, like we have, we've lost, we've lost language when it comes to kind of group, 
group pairings or group relationships as a whole. Um, so, so that's a piece of it. The other piece, I think, also is the difference between asynchronous and synchronous conversation um, in terms of the effects that that has. Like, so, so much. The examples that we've given so far have been mostly in terms of what's positive has been synchronous in nature. You talk about FaceTiming, mm-hmm. you know, your brother playing a video, playing a board game together. Um, you know, my son video gaming with somebody at the same time. The, the synchronous conversation, even when it's done virtually, still has an element of surprise in it. Like you, you can stick Correct. your foot in your mouth you can say, <laughs> make a bonehead comment, you know, sure. you can laugh about it. Uh, you can apologize for it. There's the off the cuff stuff that is sincere and genuine is part of, again, when you're a group of people who trust you and you love that, even if you make these comments or say these things that make you look a little foolish, they're still going to love you and still going to respect you and still going to be a great time. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to social media or even texting, truthfully, texting is not synchronous. Texting is asynchronous. Despite what people think, it's asynchronous. And the reason it is, is because you can spend as much time as you want curtailing your message, having the right adjective, the right verb, how many exclamation points am I supposed to have to actually communicate my excitement is one, is five too many? You know, like sure. these are the debates that we end up thinking about. Which emoji is the best? Is it, right. is it, is right. it, is it the one with the, if I'm really sad, is, is it enough to have one tear? Do I have to have the one which it, it's really crying? It's like waterfalls coming off the, the eyes. waterfalls coming out, yeah, yeah. sure. Which is, which is the one that, that actually communicates my expression? And so, we, we take a leap right there when it's not just nonverbal that like then what naturally comes out comes out. But now it's like I have to plan the, the way that I communicate what I'm feeling. And right. that is a significant shift in, in conversation and in communication that is yeah. not the same thing as just being face to face, having a discussion. Well, and there are a couple elements to that, too. One, you know, you're describing a scenario which you're right. People really agonize over the nuances. I'm going to use... Uh, the 100 emoji with a series of fireworks, but I don't want to use this one because somebody else did it and this isn't cool anymore. And maybe I should use a GIF, but I couldn't use this GIF because they won't get this GIF because they haven't seen Batman or, you know, (laughs) one of those things that, that almost gets, I mean, we get so wrapped up at that point. We're not, we're not communicating. We're, we're, we're polishing, we're refining. The flip side are the people who just hammer something out. Right. And what's interesting there is the way that our brains uh, receive a written message versus it, versus send a written message. If I were to type something, I don't assume the same emotional content as if someone reads. If we read a text message, it has the same emotional impact as hearing that person say that thing. Mm-hmm. It's not true when we write it. It doesn't feel the same as saying it to someone. So let's say, uh, I'll pick on my brother. Let's say my brother, as a joke, uh, texted me and said, I hate you so much, I wish that you died. Right. Now, when I open that, it's a little bit jarring. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand he's joking, but it takes me a minute. But wait a second, hold on. Why, why, why did you say that to me? Oh, I didn't mean it. I was joking around. Well, that's between siblings. If we do this, not in close friends, but among acquaintances, we get a lot of disconnect between meaning and interpretation. And I think it can cause a tremendous amount of of, uh, confusion and hurt and frustration when we are communicating in these um, stripped down ways. Yeah, especially when you start talking about something like humor. Humor humor has a lot to do with context and, uh, and expectation. Um, a comedian that we've started watching here recently as a family is a guy by the name of Nate Bargatze, probably in the last mm. year or so we've been watching him. He's hilarious. Uh, uh, he's, he's really funny and, and clean, very family-friendly stuff, but but hilarious at the same time. And he shares the story in one of his stand-up bits about doing a stand-up for like uh, – a company that pays him, you know, to come mm-hmm. for like a corporate a corporate party corporate or something gigs. like that. Yeah, yep. corporate gigs exactly. Except that the people there didn't know that he was doing stand up. And so he walks into a large group of people who barely speak English and don't even know he's doing stand up and starts doing stand up. And uh, and he says something to the effect that like if you don't know you're doing stand up and you're doing stand up, it just looks like you're being mean. You know, so it comes <laughs> down to you know <laughs> and so so anyways, but so context matters. And when it comes to humor and things of that nature, it's really hard to be able to communicate that 
Um, some people, of course, do it very, very well on social media, but but you kind of know that that person's joking. You know that person's a comedian. Yes. So the context is already there. You're expecting that to be the case. But as you said, you can get a text or something of that nature, and, it, and the context is lost. Um, so one is certainly that, but then two, it's just you can hide behind it. You you mm-hmm. you may not. It may be more socially acceptable in this conversation for me to put the the 100. You know, but you don't really like the 100, or maybe the, you don't even know what that means. You know, the, the emoji, and so like you can hide behind things, or you can just flat out lie, and nobody would know. You could say, "I'm doing great, doing great, doing great," but never actually communicate that. Um, that goes back to that idea of trust. If you don't trust the person you're talking to, why would we ever show weakness? Why would we ever admit that we're not doing? Because the concern is that if I do something that is either draining or taxing or unpopular to the other person, they're gone. They will ghost me. They will disappear. So I can't say, you know what, actually, I'm really depressed right now. I'm having a hard time. That person might not really be a deep friend. They might say, oh, gosh, I, I you know, I can't do this. So sorry. Hope you're doing well. Good luck. Right. Bye. But we so, shouldn't have that expectation on our followers either. I mean, that's that's. <laughs> I, I go back to that. I mean, we shouldn't have that right. level of expectation on people that we're interacting with just, you know, through through the social media stuff. That should not be the place that we get our security from. And, and Correct. So. But if people don't feel that they can get that somewhere else, if they if all they have potentially are followers, right. if they are part of that 40% that said they always or often feel lonely, they're going to keep going back to the same world they've been going to and wondering why they're still thirsty. Right. So is it just that the generation has not doesn't know how to interact per, in person anymore? Does that contribute to it? I mean, like we talk about free play, like when I were kids, free play is an essential part of childhood. Yes. And we see this even in the animal kingdom, you know, where like baby monkeys, you know, are fighting with each other. And they're not really fighting. They're, they're testing each other. Cubs, you know, lion cubs mm-hmm. wrestling with each other. It's all part of free. That playfulness is part of social interaction and, and learning and, and, and developing that. And we see that with children that you're supposed to have. Of course, obviously, there's stages of development. I know all that. But, but by and large, like just having free time where you're just able to play together and be together um, is right. when you start navigating social, the complexities of social interactions. Mm-hmm. You play Red Rover, Red Rover, send Susan right over. You know, you're like, I've had a crush on Susan and I hope that she, you know, kind of runs, chooses, chooses my arm to run through. You know what right. I mean? Like, that's, that's, that's what I desire. Like, that type of stuff is supposed to be that, like, are we just, but now everything's structured in terms of ball games and, and, and play, play dates, everything. I mean, it's just that we've lost that spontaneity aspect of it. Is, is, that, is that part of this too? Or, or am I just, am I, am, I, am I grasping too much here? No, I don't, think you, I don't think you are grasping too much. I think that's a part of it is that um, it's, the, it's the unstructured nature. I mean, the idea of playing Red Rover. Yeah, Red Rover has rules. But in free play, a group of kids would have determined what do you want to play? There had to be some sort of, of um, cooperation. Yeah, no in the group to say, we are going to now play tag, or hide and go seek, or Red Rover, or dodgeball. We're going to play something. If you are always uh, using the scaffolding of, say, you know, media or something else, it's okay. Today you're doing this. Go play. We've already set the structure for you. So, uh, you know, sandbox games or something on Fortnite, for example, or Minecraft. All right, don't do this. This is the context of your world, but we've already made up the, you know, made some of the key decisions for you. There's a lot of there's a lot of innovation that happens in free play, and there's a lot of opportunity to problem solve and to resolve conflict. I mean, I remember I, I probably learned more at recess about how to interact, how to navigate, how to negotiate than any classroom mm-hmm. in grade school. I was reading something recently that, that was a, a fascinating perspective I hadn't thought of before. The author was saying that childhood now has become early stage resume book. <laughs> that what you're doing actually is trying to set yourself up for the next thing. Because if it, you know, fifth grade, mm-hmm. if you're not setting yourself, how can you get into the good high school? Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't, if you don't show that you're on the travel team for Sport X, mm-hmm. how are you going to get that scholarship by the time you get to college? And we've almost we've lost the simplicity. We've lost the idea of yeah, you know, what, what do you want to do? I want to go run around in the woods for two hours. Great, that's wonderful. Who we'll do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're and we've lost the sense of just being bored is okay. Like it's not. Mm-hmm. 
it's not, that's why I tell the boys, they're always like, I'm bored. You know, I'm like, well, and? <laughs> good. It's, it's a good. It a, yeah. a priest friend of mine tells a story. He and his dad were uh, driving on one of the highways here in Northern Virginia in, in traffic. And somebody came driving past them. This guy was driving on his own in his car and his music is blaring, just yeah. blaring. The car very slowly drives past, and my friend's dad says, there's a man who's afraid to be alone with his own thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't always need something to drown out the noise. Boredom sometimes allows us to think about the tough things in our life, ask the tough questions, mm -hmm. actually engage with what's going on. How am I doing? Yeah. What matters? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And so not being afraid of that. And so giving space mm -hmm. for those things, you know. Part of the instantaneous nature of, of the phones and devices is that, well, it's just easy. You know, so if I, if I need that quick dopamine hit, let me just kind of look at the phone and scroll. Let me see. You said earlier that you realized that entertainment wasn't the highest value. And, and, and sometimes we still feel that, though. We just need, I just need, and again, there are times where I just, I need a 15-minute YouTube, you know, hit sure. just to kind of be entertained for a few minutes. No problem. Correct, laugh at a couple of things or something or, you know, but, but again, when that becomes the sole um, when that overtakes us, and I think that's what you've been saying the whole time, is just finding balance, you know? Like that yes. means that you have to make real sacrifices to let go of the devices at times and allow yourself to be one with your thoughts, be patient with your friends. Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes also we feel this pressure, like when we post something or when we say something, because we expect instantaneous response, that when it doesn't come, we get frustrated and notions of like despairing or things of like, mm -hmm. the, these weren't, I think of like a hundred years ago when you would write a letter and it would take like three months to get to its destination. Right. You know, they didn't think anything about it. I mean, it wasn't like now it's like if they don't reply back in two minutes, you know, they must, hate me. They must yeah, hate me. It's such an emotional roller coaster. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, we're, we're ping ponging back and forth from, you know, hey, you know, you gave me a, you gave me a, a, a laughing comment on my text message. That's great. Oh no, you haven't responded mm -hmm. for four minutes. Now I'm, I must've said something awful. What a jerk you are or how terrible are you? Yeah. I, it's, it's, you know, obviously clinically we don't mean bipolar, but it feels that sure. way. Sure. Just these radical highs and lows. You're like, wait, just balance. Balance. Find disengage. That, find that midpoint. Yeah, disengage. Just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. You know, it doesn't, even if you get the positive comment, Great, rejoice in it, move on. If you don't get any right. comments, let it go. Let it go. Right. If, so, if your day is substantively better because somebody thumbed up a text of yours, there might be something. Wow. Well, I got to put this conversation to an end now. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <It's like> <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing. I'm just messing. But, I, but, it's, but it's awareness that like, I, I just think about it for myself. I'm like, man, I'm 41, you know, and I... And I struggle with these things, you know, sure. I can't even imagine like a 16 year old who doesn't have like a fully functioning brain and, Oh, it's tough. You know, it's and they grew up, so look, tough. And they grew up with this, so yeah, they grew up with this being normal for us. It's hard to navigate. And this is relatively new for us. Yeah, this is yes. only the last, you know, quarter of our lives yeah. for kids who grew up with this being the norm. The idea of, of having to navigate that it's extremely challenging, but I think the most important thing that, that we can do to support any young person in our life it's just encourage a sense of intentionality. It's very difficult to back into good balance. It's very important, I think, to stop and say, okay, how much do I actually want to spend time-wise on this game, on this platform? How much time do I want to spend overall engaging in screens? Because if we can purposefully determine what we want to do, we've got a much greater sense of control and can recognize, well, this is what I'm doing with my time, as opposed to just getting caught up in everything and then wondering, oh, I, I don't know. I haven't seen daylight in three weeks. I, I don't know what's going on. So if a parent's listening to this, or even if a young person is listening to this mm -hmm. and wants to like begin that process of backing up, you know, and in, in pulling, putting some restrictions, where, where could they start? I, I'm thinking of a parent who maybe has been a little bit too lax with it and now is realizing they need to enforce a little bit more. And now they're getting the pushback, you know, from, mm -hmm. from the kids. Um, what would you say to, to, to that group? It's a tough thing, but I would encourage uh, going cold turkey, a two-week screen break for everybody in the house, not just the kids. Because if, if the parents are saying, you need to do this, 
but I'm still going to go ahead and, 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 and do this because it's important. That's the kids aren't going to follow through with that. Obviously there are essential things that need to happen. Work, school, got it, mm-hmm. but it's the other stuff. It's all the other screens. Can we actually stop and say, you know what? All non-essential screen use stops for two weeks. And we're gonna to try to find a lot of other activities to fill that time with. And once we complete that two weeks, say, okay, what do we wanna do? Let's add things back in, but titrate it slow so that it's not just back to the deluge that it had been. Mm-hmm. And that's a really hard thing to do when we become so dependent on it. But I find that when you realize how hard it is, that actually is the indication that, wow, this has taken a much more dominant position in my life than perhaps I realized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you have a hard time saying no, mm-hmm. you realize yeah. how, how, how much it's impacted you. So, okay. Correct. That's great. That's great advice. Certainly. Um, and what about for an individual, you know, young adult who's listening to us and, and they need Same to find thing. better balance. Same thing. Try that. The other thing too is it's always, you know, we're coming up on the end of Lent here. Oftentimes we go into Lent thinking about what we're going to give up. We're going to let go of. We don't often think about what we're going to take on. I would say the same is true, but for young adults, for for families, what are you going to add? Because if we're still saying you've got 24 hours and we're trying to reduce this use of time here, what's meaningful that I want to put in instead? Because if I say, okay, I'm not going to look at social media, I'm just going to stare at the wall for 90 minutes a day. That won't really be satisfying. That could happen. (laughs) No, but what are we going to do instead? You know, can we find opportunities to encounter people, to engage, to pick up a hobby, to volunteer? to really do something that is life-giving, that is positive, that gives us a sense of meaning. Because when we do have those feelings of loneliness, isolation, a lot of what we're talking about is I don't know where I fit and I don't feel like I'm doing something that matters. Lean in and find ways to go and explore that. Do something meaningful, do something where you feel like this matters. What I did today made a difference to myself or to others or both. Amen. Amen. Which means often service, you know, getting out and helping mm-hmm. people or right. creativity. Again, back to yep. that, you know, if you feel like you're genuinely contributing, you know, through art or um, some other form of um, creative expressions, you know, being helpful, doing those things is, 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 is great. Um, but you have to give yourself space to be able to think. You have to give yourself space to be able to then really pray and ask those questions about what is it that I could do to, um, to find more meaning. And, um, and I think some of that, like we said earlier, is that maybe the convenience of it um, robs us of our grit. You know, and you said earlier mm-hmm. that kind of the convenience sometimes can rob us of our capacity to, to commit, but I think it sometimes also robs us of our, our, our attention span and our ability to, to endure, um, you know, challenging questions or, or challenging topics or pursuing projects that require more, more effort to them than something kind of simple as, you know, blasting out a tweet, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So, well, Michael, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for, for joining me on the show. If, if people have questions or are interested in getting the book, um, how, how can they do that? They can find the book on all online stores. And if they have any other uh, questions, they can reach me at drmichaelhorn.com. Wonderful. Fantastic. Well, final question to ask all my first time guests. Um, Dr. Horn, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? What gives me hope is the great gift of being able to accompany people and help them see their own dignity and understand that they have the capacity to say yes to God and to experience real flourishing in their lives. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, good answer, man. It's good stuff. All right. Well, Michael, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Well, that does it for my conversation today with Dr. Michael Horn with great gratitude to him for coming and joining me on the podcast and having this great conversation about how technology impacts us. And so I pray as we kind of come to the end here that we all just, you know, 
take a little bit of a self-assessment and say, man, like how, how much is this stuff really impacting me? Am I, am I really aware and attentive? And the best way to be able to know what impact technology is having is on you is by actually cutting out of your life for a couple days. Try your best to go on a little bit of a fast and see how you feel. If you only limit yourself to emails and phone calls and texts, the things that are actually necessary, but get off of social media, do that for a few days and see how you feel. And then ask yourself, man, if I feel any better, then it might be good to know. So anyways, just offering this as a little encouragement here at the end of the episode. So God bless everybody. Thanks for listening. I pray everybody's having a great day. God bless you and be good. Be good.